0: Good morning everyone. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. I hope everyone is having a wonderful morning and staying dry. We're going to go ahead and get started with some worship, so I invite you to stand if you're able. i then he
1: Well, good morning, La Jolla Community Church. You may be seated. Thank you all so much for joining us. I know you had to fight through the horrible storm that is the dangerous weather in San Diego, but you are all the brave, wonderful soldiers that made it here, so we love and appreciate you. We thank you so much for braving this terrible, terrible weather. But again, my name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the Director of Youth Ministries, and I want to thank you all so much for joining us on this wonderful Sunday. I'd love to bring everybody's attention on your way in. You should have gotten one of our fancy new bulletins. Craig pointed out to me last week, they're so fancy, you can't even tell, but if you notice right in the middle, there's a little perforation, and you can tear that bad boy right in half. They're designed too well, you can't even see it. I love it. So this top half, we're hoping and praying you take it home, especially with the events that we have upcoming. If you flip it right on the backside, you'll see we've got a lot of fun stuff going on for Holy Week, which starts next Sunday. It's sneaking up. I know Christmas was yesterday. Easter's coming up right around the corner. Please take this top half home. Invite somebody to church. Let them know that we have a wonderful, amazing community that just wants to serve on our community, that just wants to love on and pour out to the people of UTC. So if you've got somebody in your life who maybe doesn't have anything to do next Sunday, or maybe they're a little lonely on Good Friday and you want to date night or something fun to do, bring them to church. Have them come to Good Friday. I know Pastor Steve's got an awesome message planned for us, so please take this top half home, invite somebody to church, let them know some of the wonderful things that we've got going on. I was told we had over 300 people here yesterday for our Easter block party, so thank you so much for anybody who helped and participated in that. round of applause. Connie put on an awesome, awesome event for everybody, so we thank you so much. But Please take this top half home, invite somebody to church. This bottom half is for you. This front side says get connected with us. Like our Easter block party yesterday, we need lots of help to make everything run here at La Jolla Community Church. So if there's a ministry that you would like to be involved in, maybe it's children's ministry, young adults, whatever you would like to get involved in, please take a moment, fill out this Connect card, let us know how we can get you connected and engaged here at La Jolla Community Church. If you flip it over right on the back side, it says, let us pray for you. This is, uh, we at La Jolla Community Church believe in the power of prayer. We believe in taking every single individual prayer, and we have a dedicated prayer team every single week that prays over every prayer request that gets turned in. If you've got something wonderful going on in your life, please let us know. We want to praise the Lord with you. If you've got something difficult going on in your life, you need a little extra love, a little extra support, maybe there's a friend, a neighbor, a family member who's having a bit of a hard time right now, please take a moment, fill out this prayer card, There should be a pen in the seat back directly in front of you. I will not be offended if you're filling it out while I'm talking. Please, please, please take a moment. Fill this out. We want to cover you in prayer. We want to love on you. We want to support you. On your way out, you can take this prayer and connect card along with the offering envelopes that are in the seat backs directly in front of you, and you can drop those off on the uh, boxes mounted on the wall here and in the Welcome Center. Well, we thank you so, so much for joining us on this wonderfully chilly Sunday. Hopefully, everybody's staying dry, having a wonderful time, Um, but I would love to invite Pastor Steve up to lead us in a message. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan.
2: Ryan, you make tearing a card look like origami. you were so elegant. That's awesome. Wow, uh, yesterday was a big, big day. Really, really fun day. Easter block party. 319 people. Uh, Bob Penner uh, was keeping track. Uh, Zeke uh, said about 100 would show up. I said about a thousand. And so I consider that there was probably a thousand people on the way, and they got lost. But it was. Uh, it was a fantastic, wonderful event, and you know a couple dozen people supporting it to make it happen. Thank you all for that. And what a magnificent impact it makes on this community to do stuff like that! Uh, all the work getting ready for it, all the work cleaning up, uh, is absolutely worth it. So, um, I'm glad that's part of our DNA—figuring uh, out things every week, uh, throughout the year, uh, ways to bless people, and sometimes ways they don't know. Um, and sometimes ways that they get to fully participate and see who's providing it. So um, that's who we want to be. Uh, people so alive in Christ that we can't help but uh, see every opportunity as, as an occasion to uh, bless people because God's blessing us in big ways. And so today we're continuing to ask this question uh, why Jesus? Why Jesus? Uh, can't people just bless people without invoking Jesus? Why bring Jesus into it? Why clutter up uh, the conversation with Jesus. And we found that apart from Jesus we can pretty much do nothing. Uh, nothing from the standpoint of our motives, uh, for the aftermath. Uh, usually when we do stuff, I hate to say it as a human being, but uh, but apart from Christ we do stuff for us. And we, in a sense uh, we do it for our own glory, for our own gain. Uh, and And when we have those moments when we do something um, just because we, we, we know we want to do it, we can't help but, but put it on social media and uh, let people know that we randomly and subtly just blessed a lot of people. So uh, not a slam on anybody's efforts to, to bless other people, but what, it, what occurs to me over and over and over again is that God gives us the capacity to be the people He created us to be. One of the fun things that Connie did is a really wonderful symbolic thing. And it was actually is a piece of art, a giant piece of art that Janet Griffin um, did. When people came in to the property, they were directed to go through this empty tomb. And, and we had uh, a junior high guy there dressed as a centurion. He was fearsome and intimidating, I got to admit. And uh, the styrofoam sword in his hands looked dangerous. So it was quite impressive. And then we had an angel. Uh, and then Janet had created this incredible rock facade that literally looked like uh, stone. It was just so fantastic. And, and they had this kind of steamy, safe smoke you know, coming out of it. So every little kid came up and like, I am not going through that thing. You know? um, it was really wonderful because the symbolism um, is that people were walking through an empty tomb. And on the other side of that, uh, they were blessed to have all these people at the table saying, um, what do you need? Here's some tickets to have a great time, and then they saw this whole wonderful array of things to do. Uh, there were kids yesterday there who have never seen a horse in person. Never mind riding one. Uh, somebody walked up to read the lady who uh, is the wrangler for all the animals that we had, uh, the ones that they could kids could kid in and, and, and run around with a couple different enclosures. And a kid said, "What is that thing?" And she said, oh, "It's called a lamb." And, and if you, you know, this is one of the things that we're so disconnected from is, is the larger world we live in. We see pictures of things. Um, sometimes um, I'll, I'll be out in our garden, it's in our front yard, and some kid will walk by and go, what's that? I said, it's called broccoli. Said, no way. It doesn't come on a stalk like that. No, it's broccoli. here, take it home. Well, I don't like broccoli, actually. I was just wondering what it was. Um, the idea that we don't know what we don't know. And so we're asking the question, uh, why Jesus? And today specifically we're asking the question, so what does it mean to talk about Jesus as a Lamb of God? We just sang a song invoking his name as a Lamb of God. Uh, some of you have maybe heard that Latin phrase, Agnus Dei. I have a friend who's a musician and every time he talked about that, he'd go, yeah, the Angus Dei. I go, no, it's not the lead guitar player for ACDC, okay, it's not Angus. It's Agnus, it's, it's Lamb, it's Lamb of God, Agnus Dei. It's not something you'd say to some uh, really fearsome person. You know what, man, i got to say something. You just remind me of a lamb. You are so lamb-like. You just never think to say that to somebody. And yet somehow in that song, as we were singing that song, we are singing about something that was very really profound and powerful and invoking something uh, earth-shattering and life-changing. And so we, we wanna, I want to walk you through that. Um, as, as we think about this question, uh, why is Jesus uh, the Lamb of God? Maybe you already know. Uh, maybe you don't. But it's an odd phrase and it needs a little unpacking. Uh, but in context, I think you're going to see that it's, it's profound and it absolutely captures the heart of this thing we call the gospel, the good news. And it really is the, is, the, is the fulfillment of God's promise to bless all families on earth, uh, to bless all nations, to restore and redeem His creation. So let me give you this sentence. As I was thinking about it, how would I describe it? Uh, It's like this. Uh, Jesus is the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is that significant? It's because this is exactly opposite of what everybody expected. Everybody expected when, when when Messiah came, it would be taking names and uh, taking names. It would be a moment of reckoning. It would be a new sheriff in the hood, a new power on the block, uh, th- going to make things right. And people lived in expectation of that. And they said the more powerful you can become, the more you can control other people, uh, the more your influence uh, either intimidates or inspires people, and causes you to, to receive their fear or their regard. That's what it's all about. I'm going to read you a couple of passages from the prophet Isaiah. And then I'm going to read you a passage from John's Gospel. Now the, the context for Isaiah is this is written, this happens 700 years before Jesus is born. And it's about midway through when Moses was walking around and Jesus emerged. So about halfway through the people have had the word of God in some form. Uh, they've had the tabernacle and then a temple uh, where heaven and earth come together. Uh, they've had all these practices. Uh, through Moses they received this amazing thing called Passover where they would uh, every year sacrifice, uh, where, where Moses sacrificed a lamb on behalf of the people and all the people sacrificed their own lambs and, and covered their doorposts with blood. So you put it to the top and the sides. And that blood on that door alerted the angel of death to pass over that home. But that night the firstborn throughout Egypt uh, were struck down. And after, after all these other plagues that God had used by way of warning from, for, for uh, Pharaoh to say let my people go, finally he capitulated and said okay fine, fine, fine. And uh, with all the wailing and grief and loss going on in Egypt they left uh, slavery on the way to freedom the promised land. And so every year that's been the most high and holy practice of the Jewish people to this day. And, and they ask several questions at Passover. Why is this night different than every other? And there's several other questions that are asked as well. And they always ask it of the youngest child. And the youngest child is always the one pulled in to be um, the centerpiece of that meal. Why? Because they're saying, we want, to, we want to fulfill what Moses told us in Deuteronomy 6. For the Lord our God is one, therefore tell these things to your children. Uh, it's not just a belief, it's a way of life. So here's Isaiah, and, and you'd think it would be the high point, uh, the midway between Passover and the Messiah showing up. But instead, what you find is Israel is really wealthy and powerful and smug, and self-satisfied. Now there are people among them, their own people who are poor, and mistreated, and abused in every other way, socioeconomically, whatever. uh, Ostracized, isolated. But for the most part, it's awesome being me. And Isaiah shows up and Isaiah is uh, articulate. He's, he is a person with a lot of uh, charisma and status in the sense of who he is. But he, he, re- he removes all that. At one point, he literally <laughs> removes his clothes and walks around saying, I just want you to see my nakedness because this is how God sees us. It was so powerful and profound the way he came at the people. He named his first son Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, this is a great first baby name. By the way, if you're thinking of having children, uh, and you're wondering about names, I'd go with it. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It just rolls off your tongue. Um, a, a young guy came to our church a couple years ago, uh, and I said, Hey, uh, my name's Steve. What's yours? He goes, Mahir. I go, Your name is Mahir? He said, Yeah. I said, As in Mahir Shalal Hashbaz? He goes, How did you know? <laughs> he said, No, it's not my whole name, but it, it, that's, that's part of my name. Well, what it means, though, is this uh, you're in big, deep trouble. Mahershal al Hashbaz means quick pickings, easy prey. You people think you're so awesome, you have no idea the collision that you're about to encounter. And in fact, they were carried off into captivity. Ten tribes never to return again. And then later there was another exile, and the prophet of the day then was Jeremiah, and, and similar things were happening. So, why do I tell you this? Because out of this, out of this sense of smugness and, and, and self-regard and, and self-sufficiency and the expectation that Messiah would set things right and reinforce this kind of life for us, Isaiah comes in with a very different message. And the message is basically that, that uh, the Messiah will be a suffering servant, the equivalent of a lamb that is offered in sacrifice for the salvation of the people. This was an entirely different model. This is why when you read the New Testament, you see that mashup between Jesus and the religious authorities. They were so disrespectful and 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 rejecting of him because they said, sorry, you do not fit the paradigm that we're functioning under here. And then of course, in a couple weeks we'll celebrate Palm Sunday. He didn't, he he wasn't supposed to come in on a donkey. The Messiah would come on on a big white charger you know, and there'd be trumpet sounds, there'd be a big ta-da, you know. Mm -mm. So let me read you these, these three passages. It's a lot of scripture, but I'll just read through it because I wanted to give you the narrative flow. And so the servant, let's talk about this servant idea that was so buried that it wasn't until after Messiah came that they started to unpack it and said, oh my gosh, it's been here all along. Why didn't we see this? Why? Because we wanted to see what we wanted to see. Does that describe anybody you know? I just see what I want to see. Words mean what I want them to mean. I interpret everything from the standpoint of how do I feel about it? How do I see it? What does it mean to me? And so the servant uh, passage out of Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. Now here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. Now there's some very poetic language, it's prose, very poetic language, so it's the kind of thing, we've talked about this before in conversations, the thing that we do after worship, is that you have to read the scripture and and let it draw you in, because often it's it's packed so densely first reading you go, well, a bruised reed, uh, what's that about? And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope to the furthest parts of the earth you can imagine. Islands out there somewhere. It'll it'll extend that far. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all the spring that springs from it, who gives breath to its people, And life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release uh, from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Does that resonate with you? Does that sound at all familiar to you, that last little line? This is, the, this is the passage that Jesus quoted when he announced his ministry in that synagogue in Nazareth. And at the end of it, he says, this scripture is being fulfilled in your presence. And they went nuts. They marched him out of town onto the edge of a precipice. You can still see it to this day, this precipice on the edge of Nazareth. And they're going to throw him off it. He just turned around and he looked at them. And he walked right through them and they parted. So these aren't just interesting words that Isaiah is invoking. A lot of hyperbole. These things have actually come to pass. The servant. So let's talk about this servant. What kind of servant will he be? Well, one who suffers. So we see this in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So Isaiah says, see... Now, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, these, uh, these Jews in Jerusalem started saying, wait a minute, that, that Messiah isn't a king commanding an army. Though he is a king who can command an army, he came as not only a servant but a suffering servant to the point that by the time he was crucified, he was unrecognizable. And what they thought was an open and shut case simply opened up a whole new perspective on things. And so Isaiah goes on to say, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Um, this is a parable that talks about at the end of time, at the, at the great judgment. Uh, people will stand up and say, how dare God judge me? He doesn't know it's like to me, me, to be betrayed, to be abused, to be abandoned to have to deal with the, the, the indignities of life and the dangers of life every day. How does he know about that? And Jesus will stand up and say, I think I understand. So you see the beauty and the power and, and the upside down reality of what God did. Nobody can say to God, you don't know what it's like to be a human being. He say, I absolutely know what it's like to be a human being. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. With the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Do you remember at his trial when Caiaphas, the high priest, was saying, So, who are you? Are you God? You think you're the high priest, not me? And in, in the face of that, he was silent. Remember that? He was silent before the shears. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And now here's the bombshell. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now this was so obscured um, by Israel's sense of entitlement. Hey, we are the chosen people. Do you understand that? Right, right. But you're supposed to be chosen in order to be a light to the nations. You're supposed to be the visual example of what God is doing and how He's going to do it. When He told you to be separate and holy, He said to take sacred what He's promised you and to live in faithfulness to Him, not to avoid contact with anybody who's not you. Your sacredness was meant to be a witness and an influence. Not a barrier, but a bridge. So let's see. Uh, The servant who suffers is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we see in John chapter 1. And we pick it up in verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now, remember, John is a priest, his father was a priest. He's from a line of priests going back as far as uh, he can chart his genealogy. He's so influential among the priests that when many of the priests left Jerusalem in complete disgust and went down near the Dead Sea and they started a community called, in a place called Qumran. Uh, and it's that community that they started to uh, put scriptures together and, uh, and, and, re- and reflect on who the Messiah would be and what would it look like for us to live a righteous life. And then at, at some point they were crushed by the Romans. But before that happened, they took all their writings and they put them in jars and they stowed them in cliffs there by the Dead Sea uh, above this little area called Qumran. And in the 20th century, in the 50s, um, some young men were, were, had their sh- flocks out there, and while they were bored out of their gourd watching these uh, goats and sheep, they would look for treasure. And at one point, they saw a cave, and one of the guys threw a rock up into the cave and heard something shatter. And so he said, that sounded really attractive to me. And it's a little tricky, but he got into that cave. He climbed up, and it's sandy, and it's exposed, and you wouldn't just say, That's, that looks fun. You'd say, I'm motivated enough to take a risk to go up and see what's up. He went in there and found these jars. Now, not understanding that the things in the jars, these scrolls, were worth anything, he thought, they're made of hide. I can take these to a shoemaker and probably turn a pretty fine profit. So they took him to a man named Candu, who had a little shop in Jerusalem. And they said, Kandu, look at what we found. He goes, he reads it, Kandu reads it, and he's shocked. He said, this is really interesting. Do you have any more of them? Oh, yeah. I'll buy all you have. On that day, Kandu went from being a shoe guy to an, to an antiquities dealer. To this day, um, you, uh, if you'd been around you know, 30 years ago, you could have seen an old man, Kandu, in his little shop now in Bethlehem. You could say, do, can I see this, the jar You go okay. You go up some rickety stairs, and they're in like an alcove, a little attic-like space. There's this jar, and you go, I can't believe I'm looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls jar. Can do. uh, Knew that uh, I gotta turn this into cash. How am I gonna do that? So he put an ad in the New York Times. Interesting stuff for sale. And the Jewish government said, Kandu is a Palestinian, and the the Jewish government said, this sounds really good. Now, it was like a whole dance of how do we do this deal and avoid all the obvious complications of this. And so eventually it was all, I I think they resolved it, as I recall, money exchanged hands. Uh, And so uh, Kandu held on to one of the jars, and and now uh, his sons and grandsons run his shop And it's now in full display on the floor of the shop, covered in a glass container. So John uh, was a credible priest. We tend to think of him as just this wild guy, came out of nowhere. Uh, But actually he was of a priestly family, a highly committed priest, and responded to the call of God to do in a very unconventional way what he found out later what he was doing. He didn't quite understand it at first what he was doing. But he was faithful to that. So he was in relationship with the priests in Jerusalem and with the people down by Qumran. So they said, who are you? And, and now John, the writer of the gospel, talking about John the Baptist, said, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, well then who are you? Are you Elijah? Uh, that cup on every Passover dinner that is never touched, is the cup of Elijah. Only only when the Messiah comes with that cup be drunk. And guess who drank that at his last supper? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally they said, well who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Ironically, the chief priests have sent somebody to say, who are you? They don't know that God has showed up. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. Wouldn't you know? I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now baptism was not an unknown thing for the Jews. I mean it was not some, what's this? In fact, there's a self-baptism ritual in a thing called a mikvah, just a a a little pool, like a you know dug out of the ground, out of stone, that wealthy people had them in their own homes. But but every temple, every synagogue would have a mikvah, so you can go and do a ceremonial bath. You go in, and um, so baptism wasn't all that unusual. But why are you baptizing then? He was asked. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptized. And you think, why why that little factoid? Uh, Because the Bible gives us great content. In fact, every detail it gives us Um, unless it's meant to be just kind of poetically stated, the mustard seed's the smallest seed. Well, it's not, but it wasn't meant to say Scientifically, you know, he was just making a point. The smallest seed you know about is the mustard seed, right? But when there's real facts involved, the Bible is 100% accurate, to the point that he says, the writer John says, you know, at Bethany, not the one right outside of Jerusalem where Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha live, not that one, the one on the other side of the Jordan. Oh yeah, we know where that place is. That's where the flats are, where people can cross and people go into the water. Yeah, yeah, John was baptizing there. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's like, what, what? It's this full circle sort of thing. A family was coming in yesterday through our tomb, and there was a, a, an older woman, um, a younger woman, and a little kid. And as the older woman and the little kid were holding hands, a, the, the younger woman behind them said, Oh, mommy, mommy, stop, I wanna get a picture. I thought, <laughs> Oh man, this woman from India is calling her mom, mommy. Guy, my kids call their mom, mommy, you know. And I said, hey, wait, let me, let me see here. So to the lady who wants to take the picture, that's your mom. And this little girl calls you mom. She goes, yes. And she started laughing. I said, i got a full circle thing going on here. She said, yeah, it's wonderful. You know. So you see with John, he's saying something that started a long time ago is coming full circle now. now. How did John know this? Well, because earlier as he was baptizing, Jesus shows up and said, baptize me. And he said, whoa, why would I be baptizing you? You should be baptizing me. And he said, so that all things are done according, accordingly. And so John baptizes Jesus, and what happens, right? A dove lands on his head, and a voice says from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So now John has that context as he's talking in this passage. This is what I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. Then, now I do. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so John says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now we've just come full circle because you saw that passage in Isaiah 42 end with the phrase, this is my chosen one. So you see the context now of this phrase and the meaning of this phrase, Lamb of God, and the shocking reality that this Lamb of God is the suffering servant. In Revelation uh, 5 and 6, if, if you've ever read that crazy, wild book of Revelation, uh, it's, it's it's highly it's like wa- looking at impressionistic art. Uh, people try to make sense of it, and they miss the whole point because the idea is just to look at it and let it pull you in. And all those things that are described as crazy as they are mean things, but they're not going to mean them in a linear way that you can actually piece together. But they are going to make a major, major impression on you at a point That this is how it all ends. A new heaven and a new earth. And so in chapter 5 it talks about uh, John is having this this, revelation, this this vision, this experience. And and he sees all these creatures and all these people assembled and there's this lamb. And there's this scroll that the one on the throne says, here's a scroll, who can open it? Actually, one of the assistants says, who, you know, on behalf of the, the the king, you know, who who can open this scroll? And it was the lamb. He said, well, only the lamb can open it. And then by chapter six, you see that the lamb is somehow the great lion of Judah. What? Wait, what happened? Oh my gosh. And this is why I, you know, why revelation is so mind boggling. because you go, now what's what? And and it's best just to go with it. See I'm I'm learning something about what God is doing and the symbolism might be lost on me at the moment but the reality of it is making its impact. Something big is happening. Something big has happened and something big will yet happen. The Lamb of God is revealed as the great Lion of Judah. Now maybe you've heard of the name Augustine. Augustine Augustine was uh, um, super articulate. He was, uh, if you think of the most I mean, literally, the best-looking, most articulate, uh, eloquent, uh, powerful, influential person you can think of. You're probably sitting next to him for all I know. You know, um, He was that guy, and his mom was a really committed Christian. She was praying for her son because he was just like the total player and smart, awesome in every way, inquisitive, thoughtful, but just uh, uh, a, a guy living large. And he comes to know Jesus. And he takes all that incredible talent um, uh, and he starts focusing on scripture to the point that he becomes a priest, he becomes a bishop. Now he's in a place called Carthage. Carthage is, the remains of Carthage are a little town called Tunis and a place called Tunisia. And all those people trying to get to Italy launch from Tunisia because it's just a small boat ride from the toe of Italy to Tunisia. But it was a Roman outpost and it was really an awesome sophisticated place. Now he's the bishop in Carthage and he's reflecting in 375 AD on this whole idea how can he be the lion and the lamb? And this is what he said Augustine said it this way why a lamb in his passion, passion as in the passion meaning his sacrifice, that's the true name, meaning of the word passion, passion to suffer, why a lamb in his passion motif? He says, because he underwent death without being guilty of any iniquity. And he says, to, he says, then, why a lion in his passion? Well, because in being slain, he slew death. Well, why a lamb in his resurrection? Because his innocence is everlasting. Well, then, why a lion in his resurrection? Because everlasting also is his might. So all of a sudden it starts to come clear to us. This idea of designating him as a lamb is not an insult. Or a way of saying he's kind of passive and innocuous. He'll give you no harm. In Christ, God's holiness and humility, His power and His majesty are integrated and revealed. No discontinuity between His holiness, His humility, His power, and His majesty. He's all of it. Well, which one is it? All of it. All of it. In our world we see power expressed as vanity, insecurity, and very often depravity. It's a a long continuum. We all have the capacity for depravity. Everybody starts out as somebody's sweet baby. At some point, that sweet baby is influenced and makes decisions. Out of insecurity, out of vanity, out of aspiration, sometimes out of total depravity. We were created to reflect and embody Those things, God's holiness, his humility, his power, and his majesty. Holiness is such a discounted term in our culture. Holiness is picked last on every team. Okay, we'll take them. Were you that kid? You know how that felt. Ah, Fine, I'll take them. Just stand there. Don't do anything. Holiness is the, really, everybody gets to come to the party? Fine. Holiness just means sacred. It means you will miss the meaning of life if you don't get what holiness is. Holiness just means things are sacred. You know what's, what's awesome? Marriage is holy. Well, then what does sex fit in? Ah, it's part of the sacred celebration of a marriage, right? So all of a sudden we have, this, we have to change our discontinuities of, well, this doesn't really go there. No, it goes there. What is sacred is what is good. If it's not sacred, it is not good. If you're in a situation where you're making, you know, you're in a moral quandary, say, is there anything sacred about this? And it will st- cause you to stop long enough to say, I don't think I can do this deal. It, uh, I could say holiness is an irrelevant category right now before we sign the contract or do the deal. But sacred, hmm. Will this demean human beings? Will this take advantage of people? In hindsight, will somebody go, you idiot? Why did you sign that? Or, hey, man, nice move. Way to pull the move. I saw on the Wall Street Journal this weekend. My favorite day is Saturday. Off-duty section, the review section. It's just great reading. And on Friday, though, they have this thing called the mansion, which is every house you could never afford. And they had this story about a mansion in Santa Barbara that a guy three years ago bought for $15 million and just sold for thirty. million. And it said the buyer was Reggie Del Ponte of Newport Beach, and I started laughing. I thought, oh my gosh, I talked to Reggie not that long ago. And and next time I see Reggie, I'm going to go, hey, nice deal on the house in Santa Barbara. Way to go, Reggie. He's a total real estate guy. He's the head of Pacific International, whatever it is, one of those big equity firms, right, that uses other people's money to make deals. So he bought this house for $30 million. You could say, what a knucklehead, why? And he would go... I'm going to sell for 45 I don't mind if he makes money, and I'm definitely going to make money. So holiness is an important category because it's sacred. And, what it, and, and for Reggie, Reggie names Christ as his Lord. And so you see, Reggie, I, I, I doubt that you did anything that was not sacred. Can you say that about you? Do you stop and say, what is sacred in this, in what I just did? Why is it every week I find myself failing at that question? No, that was not sacred, but we have to discuss it. So holiness, humility. Humility is being able to say, that wasn't so sacred, was it? I guess I have to learn some things. I need to grow. Power and majesty is only supported out of holiness and humility. Power and majesty without holiness and humility is ugly, ugly, ugly. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Destructive, destructive, destructive. You think about that. Power and majesty means everybody has to make think I'm awesome and I got the power. Mm, no humility, no holiness. It's awful. You would not want to live in that world. We read the paper, and we read about that world. Everywhere you go now, you see blue and yellow flags saying something as horrible is happening because somebody is lacking holiness and humility, but they're exercising power and supposed majesty. This is not the case with Jesus. This is not to be the case with us. Here's why. You and me, every marriage and family, Everybody in this world desperately needs what Christ came to allow us to embody and embrace, holiness and humility and power and majesty. You possess these things in Christ. They might be undeveloped in you. They might be still unwrapped, unnoticed, unappreciated. You don't know the value of what you have in you if you're not saying, Lord, what do you want to do with me to teach me how to be holy, how to be humble, how to exercise power and to experience majesty? That's when we really get nervous. I don't know, the majesty thing, I don't know. Hey, how about this? Think of it this way. I'm simply reflecting God's glory. My majesty is reflecting God's glory. It's not mine, but I get to be an image bearer as, as God created me in Genesis 1. And as Christ redeemed me in these passages? We are the image bearers of God. Therefore, holiness and humility and power and majesty are our DNA. You do not dare discount yourself from that. Nor should you dare think, well, I've I've got it. I've, I've got that wired. What else should we talk about? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. Think about this. The Lamb of God, who would soon take away the sins of the world, took some bread and having blessed it, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's Passover and it's the Lamb of God leading them through it. In the same manner, following the meal, he took the cup, the cup of Elijah, and said, this is my blood, the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And though they knew something was happening, only later did they realize I was in the presence of the suffering servant, the Lamb of God. We all are right now. And this is not just symbolic. He is here among us. I, don't, I can't explain how that works. We could spend hours, days, months, and years, and people have centuries debating what that means. I can tell you emphatically and confidently it is not just symbolic. It is substantive. I just don't know how to explain how it is substantive. But He is in us. He's with us. He's present in this moment. So when you take uh, this cup and, and, and this bread, do so as a gift from God, not a trophy. It's an invitation to become the one you were created to be and are being saved to be. Holy and humble, powerful and majestic as a beloved child of God. I, I can't help but remind you every time, take the bread out first. Then open uh, the rest. But receive it as you're ready, as we continue worshiping him and wrap it up. Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you uh, that you love us this much, that you have extended your arms. You expose your heart. You opened yourself to us in our sin. And in that moment, Lord, everything changed. So we thank you for your atoning sacrifice. We thank you that you were willing to be the Lamb of God, the suffering servant who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, We receive this in your name as the gift that it is. We pray all of this in your high and holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen. We're changing things up a little bit today. Um, we, we we can't go hang out for half an hour and have brunch. So we're going to meet back here at uh, at uh, 1045. So that means you have a chance to go get your kids if you want, uh, get them something to eat uh, in the uh, Welcome Center, and then come right back in here and we're going to jump into conversations. If you have yet to come to conversations, this is the day to do it. You don't have to wait around and then decide if you want to stay in it. But Uh, If you've been, you already know it's awesome. If you haven't been, it's really a really neat thing. It's probably the most important thing we do after worship right now. So um, at uh, 1045, come back and hear the band will do a really neat song and then we'll jump into conversations and be done by uh, 1130. So uh, take a break and we'll see you in a little bit. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in fullness and newness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you in 15.